0: Let's stand, and uh, in honor of uh, hearing directly from God through His Word, I hope you have a Bible with you, and if you don't, we have them provided in the pews. If you want to turn to page 332 in the Pew Bible, Psalm 73, and as we think about our brothers and sisters in places like Iraq who are literally giving their lives for the reading of God's Word, isn't it great to hold our own copy of God's Word, and be in a country where we do have the freedom to do what we're about to do. Amen? Amen. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, and their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongues walk through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease, and they increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence." For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them, In slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and hopeful in hearing you speak to us through Psalm 73. And Father, we are perplexed. We are often discouraged by how it seems that wickedness is unleashed without consequences. And as we think of our brothers and sisters around the world, especially those that are in Iraq, we we are confident that they are thinking some of these same thoughts. Father, help us now as we are in your place. Help us now as we hear your word. From our pastor, that we will find comfort and understanding, and we will align our thoughts and our hearts to your perspective on the troubles and the pain and the evil in life. In Jesus' name, we pray.
1: Amen. As we uh, open our hearts. This morning to Psalm 73, I want to begin by talking about our perception in life. Because how we view something in life often becomes reality for us. How many of you heard about the story of Linda Burnett a few years back? Perhaps some of you did, most of you probably didn't, but the story is told that Linda Burnett, age 23, went to a nearby supermarket to pick up some groceries. Several people noticed her sitting in her car with the, the windows rolled up and with her eyes closed and in both hands behind the back of her head. One customer who had been at the store for a while became concerned and walked over to the car. He noticed that Linda's eyes were now open and she looked very strange. He asked her if she was okay, and Linda replied that she had been shot in the back of the head and and had been holding her brains in for over an hour. The man called the paramedics, who broke into the car because the doors were locked, and Linda refused to remove her hands from her head. When they finally got into her car, they found that Linda had a wad of bread dough on the back of her head. Apparently, a Pillsbury biscuit canister had exploded from the heat, making a loud noise that sounded like a gunshot, and the wad of dough hit her in the back of her head. When she reached back to find out what it was, she felt the dough and thought it was her brains. She initially passed out, but quickly recovered and tried to hold her brains in for over an hour until someone noticed and came to her aid. How many are wondering if that's a true story? How many think that's a true story? How many think, no, if you go to snoops.com, you'll find that it's not a true story? Or Snipes, whatever it's called. What's it called? Snopes, Snopes, Snopes I'm sorry. <laughs> Snopes.com. Not a true story. But it, it provides the illustration nonetheless. It's a rather humorous example how our perception of reality can affect our response to reality. In a digital age of CGI or computer-generated imagery of our movies and videos nowadays, it's easy for us to kind of get out of touch with what's real. And when we lose our perspective of reality, we can say some things. We can even do some things that seem pretty crazy. We can even begin to lose our grip on the reality, on the truth of God's Word, on God's goodness to us. We can doubt the very goodness of God that we looked at last Sunday in Psalm 74 I mean Psalm 34 where it says taste and see that the Lord is how many were here last Sunday taste and see that the Lord is good and we can begin to doubt that truth about God perhaps you've lost your spiritual equilibrium as a result of some faulty perceptions, and now in order to find some spiritual stability, you need a reality check. Well, one of the best psalms that we can turn to, one of the best psalms that that we can look at and study to get our perception back in line with reality is this psalm right here, Psalm 73. This psalm, you may have noticed, as Chris pointed it out in the introduction of the psalm, is a psalm that is written... By a man named Asaph. Like, who in the world is Asaph? Asaph was a godly man who led one of the temple choirs during the days of King David. In fact, we could kind of say he was one of the worship leaders in the Old Testament. In other places of the Bible, it tells us that that Asaph was commended or appointed to to crash the cymbals. So, we could also say he was one of the drummers of the Old Testament. He's a worship leader. Yet, in spite of all this, Asaph is ready to pack it all in. He's ready to quit. He's ready to walk out on God. There was a time in his life when he almost did that. We almost walked away from it all. When he almost walked away from his faith in God, because his perception of reality was mixed up. And so this psalm, what I love about this psalm, it's very real, it's raw, it's authentic, it's honest. It's an authentic look into the heart of a man who felt his faith slipping away when he couldn't make sense out of an age-old question that's still being asked to this very day. Coming up on the screen, if you want to follow in your notes, you'll notice that question. An age-old question is this. How can a good God allow the righteous to suffer and the wicked to succeed? We may phrase that question in different ways, but it essentially comes down to this. This is a question that most of us, if not all of us, have asked at one time or another. This question has puzzled saints as has pleased skeptics over the centuries. We live in a world that likes to keep score. You look around and we can always find people who seem to be scoring better than us when it comes to a better job, a better house, better health, better family, better connections and fewer problems. But what got Asaph messed up here is not that people succeed in life, it's that wicked people are succeeding in life. People who who don't give a rip about God people who reject God these are the people who, who live for themselves apart from God and they seem to be succeeding in life this is asaph's problem but there's something deeper that's going on within his heart there's something deeper that's bothering him here as he works through his problem it's not just the success of the wicked it's that all too often the wicked succeed and the righteous suffer and from our point of view that stinks right i mean let's just be honest that stinks because if we really are god's people if we really are trying to fulfill his will do his mission if god really loves us like he say he does then why does he let the wicked succeed while the righteous suffer that's a very troubling question what possible good could be served by allowing this apparent inversion of justice in the world in which we live. Sheldon Vanucan frames the issue this way, and I quote his words, If only villains got broken backs or cancers, if only cheaters and crooks got Parkinson's disease, we should see a sort of celestial justice in the universe. But as it is, A sweet-tempered child lies dying of a brain tumor. A happy young wife sees her husband and child killed before her eyes by a drunken driver, and we soundlessly scream at the stars, Why? Why? Who hasn't been there? Who hasn't asked that before? Let's be honest. This perception of reality can cause a crisis of faith within us, just like it did for Asaph. You see, a crisis of faith can occur When what we see in life collides with what we know about God. We might assume that Asaph's problem here is simply theological. What I mean by that, he just needs a better understanding about God. And then he would be okay. However, he would have received an A-plus on his theology exam with what he says about God in verse 1. Did you catch it? Look what he says about God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as pure in heart. That is a true statement about our God. We saw that last Sunday in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Over and over throughout the Psalms, the the writers are attributing and talking about the goodness of God. Asaph here, theologically, knows the truth about God. And he begins with that premise But then life happens to him. Bad stuff happens to godly people. And good stuff happens to the wicked. And what we see in life now collides with what we know about God. And the result is a crisis of faith occurs within us. We begin to doubt within our own hearts the very goodness of God. And this is what's happening in Asaph's heart here. In fact, notice how he expresses his crisis of faith in verses 2 through 3. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. In other words, he almost walked away. He almost chucked it in and gave up on a good God. Gave up on a God that he knew and once believed in and just walked away from it all because what he was seeing in life did not match up with what he knew about his God. And the seemingly stuff that he saw, he couldn't handle, he couldn't reconcile it. Can you identify with that a little bit? Can you identify with Asaph here? This was a big time crisis of faith for him. He looked around and what he saw collided with what he knew. And it shook him to the core, so much so that he nearly fell spiritually. However, however, Asaph worked through his crisis of faith. And he worked through it by learning to look at life from God's perspective instead of his own faulty perspective. And now Asaph, what he does with this psalm, he's come out on the other end and he writes about it now. This is kind of like his journal. It's it's almost like his blog, if you will. And he's inviting you and I to read his blog. He invites us to journey with him through this psalm here and journey with him from his doubt about God's goodness to his faith triumphing over that doubt. Because he comes out on the other side, more solid and on solid ground. He did not slip, he did not stumble. When everything within him almost did. And so he invites us. Hey, journey with me on this. And he's real about us. What I like about this psalm here is so practical, so realistic. And so I want us to journey with him for our remainder time. And I want you to see that there are basically two perspectives when it seems that life isn't fair. Two perspectives. Number one. Doubt builds when we focus on the success of the wicked. Doubt builds when we focus on the success of the wicked. Now, let me just stop right here and kind of redefine for us who the wicked are, because sometimes when we hear that phrase, the wicked, we immediately assume that's all the evil people out in the world, murderers, rapists, pedophilers, you know, you name those kind of people. The wicked is a term that the psalmist use all throughout the psalms to simply define those who are far from God. Elsewhere, even in this psalm, the wicked are defined the ungodly. The ungodly and the wicked are people who don't know God. They've rejected God. They've rejected His Word. And so they live their lives apart from God. And in our day and age, they can even be some nice people. Although you read through the Psalms, and a lot of the people are evil, they're wicked, they do malicious deeds, even against David, as he writes about that. And so the wicked, don't don't have your mindset, the wicked are only those who should be in prison. No, no, no. The wicked are people who don't know God, don't live for God, and have rejected God. That's the wicked, that's the ungodly. And our doubt builds when we focus on their success. ASaph's faith starts to slide, and his faith starts to I mean and his doubt starts to build, when he looked around and saw the wicked, and what was it that he saw? He saw their prosperity. And when he saw this, he almost went spiritually AWOL. ASaph paints for us a very vivid picture of the wicked's prosperity or success in verses four through 11. Let's read it again. But I want to read it from the NIV translation. Where Asaph says they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice, with arrogance that threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And then Asaph gives a summary description here. He says, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now, Did you happen to notice the pronoun they used over and over and over again in these verses? That pronoun they stands in stark contrast with Asaph's conviction in verse 1 where he says, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. To those versus they. But what about those who aren't pure in heart? Is life hard for those people? Does God withhold his goodness from them? Asaph took a look around, and what he saw sent him into spiritual, into a spiritual tailspin. In fact, when Asaph sees the wicked in life, he first of all envies how they live. He envies them. You've got to love Asaph's honesty here, don't you? I mean, I certainly appreciate it. When he confesses in verse 3, "...for I was envious of the boastful." When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and who here hasn't been envious of those people who don't live for God? After all, from Asaph's perspective, look at this. Let me just kind of summarize it. In verse 4, they are blessed physically. They die peacefully. In verse 5, they have no troubles and no struggles in life. In in life, in verses 6 and 7, they flourish with pride and abundance. In verses 8 through 11, they speak arrogantly before God. In verse 12, they enjoy prosperity and carefree living. It seems like the bad guys are getting the good life and enjoying all the good stuff. And if we look at life from an earthly perspective, from a human point of view, we might feel the same way Asaph did. We might even envy this so-called good life that they're living. Everyone here knows the name of Bill Gates. In case you don't, he's the co-founder of Microsoft. And he has now regained here recently the top spot as the richest person in the world with an estimated net worth of over $76 billion. He lives in a 66,000 square foot house. I can't even compute that. 66,000? His charitable giving has made him one of the most generous people in the world, but don't expect him to donate a penny to any religious organizations or churches. Gates said in a Time Magazine interview that there is no evidence of anything divine about the human soul. Just in terms of allocation of time and resources, religion is not very efficient, he says. Gates told Charlie Rose in an interview that the specific elements of Christianity are not something I'm a huge believer in. Looking at life from an earthly perspective only, we might easily wonder, we might question, why is Bill Gates blessed with billions, and I'm blessed with unpaid bills? Why does does God bless the ungodly with the lifestyle of the rich and famous, while the godly live the lifestyle of the poor and nameless? Why is that? As Asaph pondered what he saw with his eyes in life of the wicked, he then begins to regret how he lives. He not only envies how they live; he regrets how he lives. Asaph seems to hit bottom, and he questions now whether it's even worth it to live for God, whether it's worth to live it, worth living a godly life. Look what he says in verses 13 and 15: "Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain." How many have thought that every once in a while? When you give your time to serve the Lord in our church or in the community, when you write out your giving or you go online to give to the church, you know, like, is it paying off? When, when you sacrifice for your family to serve the Lord, to lead your family to serve the Lord, when you take the ridicule at work or when you stand up for Christ and nobody gives you the time of day, you wonder, where's the payoff? Where's the reward, God? I thought you loved me. He goes on. He says, I Surely have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would, have not, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. In other words, Asaph is saying, I have pursued godliness in vain and I have suffered constantly in silence. And as a result, Asaph is starting to believe there's no advantage to living for God. From an earthly perspective, there seems to be little reward. The Living Bible puts it this way, Have I been wasting my time? Why take the trouble to be pure? Who hasn't thought that? Who hasn't felt that at times? We've all felt that way. Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, I might as well be your enemy. After all, they seem to have it better than I do. Is it worth it to be godly? Well, by the end of verse 14, Asaph wasn't so sure it was. Because it sure didn't seem like it was worth it to him. Which, what begins now with envy in his heart, leads to regret in how he lives. And now, as a result, it it results in agonizing self-doubt in the ways of God. Notice this, number three, he wrestles with how God works. Asaph bears his soul when he admits in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Or it was literally too troublesome in my eyes with what I was seeing, what I'm trying to reconcile. In other words, Asaph here, get this, he is overwhelmed because he couldn't figure out life on his own. It didn't add up. It didn't make sense. He's greatly troubled over what he sees in life, colliding with what he knows about God. And it's not adding up for him. But Asaph is simply confessing, let's be honest, what most of us have a hard time accepting too. And that is, we don't always understand how God works. We don't always understand why things happen the way they do. I mean, why does cancer kill one person but not another person? Boy, this last year I've asked that. Why did the tornado destroy this home but not the one next to it? Why are Christians in Iraq being killed while we live in relative peace here in America? Why does Ebola break out in Africa, killing almost 2,000 people now? Listen, these questions and millions others like them can never be fully answered this side of heaven. So what do we learn from Asaph so far in this psalm? Well, here's what we learned so far. Notice this, we will doubt God's goodness as long as we draw conclusions from what we see in life from our human perspective. We will doubt God's goodness as long as we draw conclusions from what we see in this fallen world. Listen, we will envy the wicked, we will regret living for God, and most of all, we will doubt the goodness of God. And as long as we try to make sense of what we see, this life, based on our own perspective, it will be, in the words of Asaph, too painful or too troublesome. In other words, it will result within a crisis of faith. You see, the problem with Asaph and the problem we face is really a problem of perspective. We need a different perspective. Folks, we need God's perspective. You see, doubt builds, and it begins to rise within our heart when we focus on the success of the wicked from our human perspective. But Asaph shows us here, number two, that faith triumphs when we focus on the goodness of God. As we come to verse 17 in this psalm, we see a big-time shift in Asaph's paradigm as he goes through a reality check. In the first half of the psalm, he looks at life from his perspective, but in the second half, he begins to look at life from God's perspective. And folks, it makes all the difference in the world for him. Everything changes for Asaph in verses 16 and 17. Look at it. I want you to see this for yourself. Notice what it says. Verses 16 and 17, Asaph writes, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Understand what? He was trying to understand what he was seeing in life, colliding with what he knew about God, and it wasn't adding up. And when I tried to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, Then I understood their end. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in his message translation of the Bible. He simply says, then I understood the whole picture. In other words, we will never understand the whole picture apart from God's picture. Apart from God's perspective. This is the turning point for Asaph. And where did it happen? In the sanctuary of God. Now don't miss this. When Asaph's head was spinning, when he couldn't make sense of life, where did he go? He went to the sanctuary of God. But so often, in our times of confusion, we tend to do what? The opposite, don't we? We tend to run away from God. We tend to isolate from the people of God. We tend to abandon our worship of God when we most need it. And what do you do in a sanctuary? What do you do in a house of God? You worship Him there. And what I mean by worship is you meet with God, you draw near to God, you hear from God, you praise God, you pray to God, you surrender your life to God, you do all those things under the big banner of worshiping God, in the sanctuary of God, with the people of God. Do you see the importance of worship, especially corporate worship with the family of God even when we don't feel like it because let's be honest there are times when we don't feel like coming to church and worshiping him especially when we're in this state of mind about reality but the turning point for us as it was for Asaph begins in worship why well notice this in your notes because worshiping God clarifies what we see in life from God's perspective of eternity. It gives us clarity. It clears the way the fog. It's in worship that we begin to see things differently. Notice this quote in your notes by Roy Clements. Listen to what this pastor writes. He says, worship puts God at the center of our vision. It is vitally important because it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. In other words, it's only when we focus on God in worship that everything is put into proper perspective. And what takes place in worship, listen to me, what takes place in worship is not leaving your life behind. And what I mean by leaving your life behind, your struggles, your problems, your troubles, your trials, the realities of your life. Asaph didn't leave that behind. We came into the sanctuary of God. No way. We don't leave our life behind. What we do instead is we bring it before God. In other words, we bring what we see in life. And what we see is our troubles, our trials. We see other people, all this junk and chaos in our world. And seeing it now as God sees it. And how does God see it? Get this from eternity's perspective. That's key. And eternity places the success of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous in proper perspective. Listen to me. Without eternity's perspective, our minds fill in the missing gaps. We draw our own conclusions, and they are oftentimes not complete. They're insufficient. They're inaccurate. But with eternity's perspective now in our minds, in our hearts, our envy of the wicked success melts into a godly grief and a holy whore because we begin to understand their end. And we don't rejoice in their end. It's not like we are at a Chiefs game and after they demolish their opponent, they've taken them down and we like rub it in their face. No, no, we don't rub their end in the wicked's face because we begin to understand what their destiny is. We're broken by it. We're burdened by it. In fact, this is what happened to Asaph. Look at it. When Asaph sees the Lord in worship, he remembers the wicked's future. That day in the sanctuary, Asaph got a renewed glimpse of a truth that he had forgotten. He remembered something that changed his whole perspective of the wicked when he writes in verse 17, Then I understood their end. This is so key. Do the wicked prosper? yes absolutely for now but what about later what's going to happen to the wicked later Asaph tells us their destruction is coming for a moment they seem to be living the quote good life but soon enough the wicked will come folks to a very bad end and that should bring a godly grief to our souls and a holy horror to our minds. Look how Asaph describes the wicked's ultimate destiny. In verse 18, he says, Surely you set them. He's speaking of God here. God, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. In verse 2, Asaph felt, felt like he was slipping away, but now he recognizes that God will cast them down to destruction. And folks, this destruction is not temporal, it's eternal. In fact, it's eternal judgment in hell. Verses 19 and 20 says, Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. In other words, it will be Unexpected. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. These verses here warn us that the wicked are living a dream now that will eventually turn into a nightmare, and we need to be broken by that. Judgment Day is coming for the wicked, and instead of being envious of the wicked's success, We should remember the wicked's ultimate destiny is destruction, and our hearts should break, not envy. When Asaph sees the Lord in worship, he not only remembers the wicked's future, he also realizes his very own foolishness in his thinking. Asaph realizes that he needs God's grace as much as the wicked need God's grace. Because in the end, listen to me, God's grace is the only difference between the wicked's destiny and the destiny of the righteous. Look what he confesses in verses 21 and 22. He says, thus, my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. And then he confesses, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, Lord. One Bible version puts it this way, I was totally ignorant. A dumb ox in your very presence. That's kind of telling it like it is. How quickly envy and bitterness can corrupt the heart. It can blind us. It renders us senseless and ignorant like a brute beast that has no concept of eternal destinies. Animals live in the moment. But when Asaph sees God in the sanctuary, he also rejoices in God's faithfulness to him. I love the first word in verse 23. It's nevertheless... Because after confessing his foolishness, Asaph immediately rejoices in God's faithfulness. Look what he writes in verses 23 through 26. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you, Lord. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fell, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. No wonder Asaph rejoices. We ought to be rejoicing as well in God's faithfulness. Did you catch all that God's doing for him? He says God holds him. God guides him. God will glorify him, and God is good to him. Listen, what do the wicked have that can possibly match that? What can equal the goodness and grace of God in our lives? How much is it worth it to know that you will someday be with the Lord forever? In glory. In his sermon on Psalm 73 here, Robert Rayburn put it this way, the wealth of the wicked means nothing. They have nothing. Without God, without forgiveness, without heaven, they have nothing, he says. With God. We have everything, and always have everything, no matter the outward circumstances of our lives. Listen, it's a grand thing to be a Christian today, now, and when you die. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, listen, the best is still yet to come. So much of what we scratch and claw for in this world today Won't mean a thing when it's all said and done. Because in the end. When it is all said and done. Get this. Notice it on the screen. It is bad to be far from God. But it is good to be near God. Look what Asaph writes in verses 27 and 28. This is his conclusion to the matter here. He says, for indeed... Those who are far from you, Lord, shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. Asaph's search here has ended. He almost slipped. He almost walked away from God in his faith, but now he's back on solid ground. He began this psalm with a core truth about what he knew about God, and that truth is God is good, and God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, but then he looked around, and what he saw in life collided with what he knew about God, and it caused a crisis of faith within his heart. at that moment he had a choice what am i going to do about it i can either walk away from god or i can turn to god and thankfully for asaph he turned to god he went into the sanctuary of god where everything changed because he began to see life now from god's perspective instead of his own faulty human perspective and in the end he announces to the world through this psalm, it is still true. God is good, and it's good to be near God. But don't miss what Asaph also says in relation to God. He says it's bad to be far from God. Why is it bad? Because those who are far from God will what? What? perish that is those who reject God's goodness demonstrated in his son Jesus Christ will suffer God's judgment in hell and yet and yet we rejoice in this and yet because of God's goodness Jesus tells us now in that very familiar verse in the Gospel of John, verse chapter three, verse 16, "For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life." Do you envy the wicked? Do you envy their success and their prosperity? How foolish, how short-sighted. For the wicked, this earth, what we see, what we claw for, what we feel, this earth is the only heaven they will ever know. Unless God intervenes in their heart and we share the gospel with them. But for the righteous... For those of us who have put our faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, and now we are declared righteous in Christ by God Himself because of our faith in Christ. For us, listen, this earth is the only hell we will ever endure. Let that lift your hearts. In the end, when it's all said and done, we will discover that nothing on earth or in heaven is more valuable than knowing God in being with God in glory. Yes, we may die someday, but even death itself cannot sever our relationship with God. And when we put our coming glory with God on the scales of eternity, the passing prosperity of the wicked will amount to nothing at all. To borrow a phrase from Jonathan Edwards, the godly have a better portion even though all they have is God. So how should we respond to this great psalm, this raw psalm, this authentic psalm? How should we respond to this? We should respond just like Asaph did. We should, first of all, trust in God's goodness. And then we should tell others about God's greatness. Asaph concludes his journey from doubt to faith with one of the greatest personal mission statements of all time at the end of verse 28. Look at it with me. Listen, young people, teenagers, you people in your 20s and 30s, if you want a life mission statement, make this one your life mission statement. You claim Psalm 73 here, verse 28, as your life verse, like Asaph did. Look what he writes. He says, I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Can you say that? Can you say with Asaph, I have put my trust in the Lord God? If not, folks, listen, don't leave here this morning without doing so. We're going to have our response time where the praise team sings and we bow our heads and it's an opportunity for you to pray to God. It's an opportunity to you respond to what God is speaking to you in your heart. And perhaps you need to pray today of putting your faith and your trust in God today. Express that to Him. God, I need You. I need Your Son, Jesus Christ, to be my Savior and Lord for my salvation. The Bible tells us that if we draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Run to the cross. Run to Jesus Christ. Trust in the goodness of God through Jesus. And then tell others about God's greatness. Listen, don't let envy devastate your witness. Because envy is the enemy of our evangelism so many times. Instead... Remember the eternal destiny of those far from God and let that motivate you to tell them about Jesus Christ. Listen, let me ask you a couple of questions here as we close. Who's the last person you shared Christ with? What's their name? When's the last time you just invited someone to church? To hear the gospel like we're hearing this morning. The hope of Jesus Christ. Listen, yes, we want to rejoice in the goodness of God in our lives. But we should be broken about the destiny of those who are still far from God and it should motivate us to speak to invite to say something the gospel's not just for us it's for the whole world is it not if it's changed your life it can change somebody else's life let's pray Lord, we come to you as needy people. As people whose hearts are often twisted and confused with the cares of this world, with the attraction and distractions of this world. As we look around our world. And Lord, I thank you that we could come here this morning and we could get a reality check from your word just as Asaph did. And Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts. I pray that you would do a work in us as only you can. And perhaps there are some here who need to put their trust in your goodness through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And for those of us, I pray that we we would respond like Asaph did. We would trust in your goodness no matter what. We would be motivated to tell others about your goodness and your greatness. And so, Lord, do a work right now in these next few moments as we respond to you. In your name we pray, amen.